Why don't we wrap up our... Uh... Check, check, check. We good. Hey, why don't we uh, wrap up our conversations here and we'll get going. So glad that you all are here this morning. Uh, I'm Zach, if you're new here, I'm one of the pastors. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are, or you scroll to it, however you would prefer. Um, we are in the book of Exodus, and we've been working our way through Exodus for uh, a few weeks, a number of weeks now. And we are going to be in chapter 13, starting in verse 17. So we've been working our way through large sections of Scripture recently, uh, talking about the plagues and Passover. And now we're going to camp out a little bit um, in terms of a smaller section of Scripture that I'm excited to dive into this morning. And when the big thing that we're going to see today is that our God provides. And that's a, that's a huge theme from cover to cover of the Bible. Our God provides. Our God provides. In the midst of suffering and pain and trial, He provides. Oftentimes, it doesn't happen His provision doesn't happen like we would want, as fast as we want, in the way that we want. But God never fails to provide. And we're going to see that in our text for today, that God provides for his people. It's very, very clear. And there's three ways, three things that we're going to see today. Number one, God provides for his people in the midst of their weakness and frailty. God provides for his people in the midst of their weakness and frailty. And frailty. Number two, God provides for his people by fulfilling his promises. God provides for his people by fulfilling his promises. And then thirdly, God provides for his people by giving them guidance. God provides for his people by giving them guidance. So let's pray as we dive into this text this morning. Father, we need your help. We confess again that apart from your word working through your spirits, um, we have nothing. We have no word from you. We are left alone in a universe without a word from God. But thanks be to you, you've given us your word so that we can know you, we can know ourselves, we can know what it means for our life to have purpose, meaning, and joy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have soft hearts this morning. I pray you'd give me words to say as I should by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a principle in parenting that my wife and I have thought about a lot over the years. I know there's a lot of people in here who are parents or are going to become parents for the first time or in that stage of just trying to figure out parenting with the littles running around. And there's a lot we could say about parenting. That's another sermon for another day. But let me just give you one thing as it connects to and illustrates the first principle that we're going to see from this text this morning. There's something here for everyone, even if you're not a parent, because those of you who aren't parents, you can help us as we exist as the Vine family. Hey, you can help remind us who are parents. And the principle is this. It's not rocket science, but if we fail to do this, we can greatly harm our kids. The principle is this. Learning to set your kids up for success. Learning to set your kids up for success. Right? We have to consider who our kids are what stage they're at, when they're little, their weakness, their frailty, 
We have to consider all that before we ask them to do something, right? So, for example, um, when my kids were little, I couldn't ask them to come help me rip some boards on my table saw in my shop, right? Their muscles aren't ready for that. Their coordination isn't ready for that. I'm not ready with the amount of patience that that would need and that that would demand, and one of us would probably lose a finger, right? So a four-year-old can't be asked to succeed at that job. They're simply, he or she's simply not ready for that. They're too small. They're not developed enough. I'm not setting them up for success if I ask them to succeed in that environment, right? Makes sense. Not hard to figure out, right? Uh, Different example. So uh, especially when my kids were little, we had sort of a zero-tolerance policy, as, as, as zero-tolerance as we could be. You know, consistency in parenting is a big deal, right? So zero-tolerance policy on fit-throwing. So if you th- do the, ar- the arch back and, like, throw yourself on the floor and freak out, like, as parents, it's unloving of us to just ignore that. Like, the, the Bible says that if you love your kids, you're going to discipline them. And so acting like a complete narcissist as you lie on the floor there with your back arch screaming— that's, that's, that's dysfunctional for your future life. So we're going to deal with that, All, you know, almost uh, on a 100% basis. But there's an, ex- an exception. If I'm the reason that they are doing that, that's really not on them. So, for example, if we have a Super Bowl party tonight and you've got little kids and you keep them up till midnight because you love to hang with your friends, right, and they usually go to bed at 7.30 and you bring them home at midnight and they throw a fit, that's not setting them up for success, is it? Right? I, I, I don't discipline in that situation because it's on me. I'm the one that pushed them. Right? I didn't set them up for success. I'm ultimately responsible for that. Right? Well, God is a parent as well. Jesus says that God is our Father. And God's the best parent that you could ever imagine. And we see that the, the fatherly heart of God In this text this morning, where where God, Yahweh God, comes down on the level of his people and meets them where they are. Look at verse 17. So let's set the context here. Uh, Remember, last two weeks, plagues, Pharaoh let them go. Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not letting them go. Let them go, Pharaoh. There's going to be hail. There's going to be boils on your skin. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be frogs. And then finally, there's going to be the death of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh relents, and he says, get out of here. I can't handle these plagues anymore. And so they're on their way out. They're in process of leaving right now, okay? Verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So what's happening here? Did you catch it? God is making provision for their weakness. He's trying to set them up for success, right? He knows how weak these people are. Why would they be weak in faith towards God? Because they haven't been following God for a very long time. They've been enslaved for 430 years in Egypt, and all the false gods of Egypt is all they've been exposed to, right? 
Now, they've heard the promises of God that have been passed down through generations, but they don't know this God very well. They've been enslaved and not free to worship him as they would desire, right? So God knows that at the first sign of struggle, they're going to want to go back to Egypt, right? That's what the verse says. Look, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So what is this text telling us? If they go the, the shortest way, the most, you know, as the crow flies kind of way, they're going to have to pass through the land of the Philistines. Why is that a problem? The land of the Philistines, is, these are the, um, a people that love to go to war. And he knows that his people are not ready for war. Why? Again, because they've been slaves for over 400 years, they're not ready for war. They're not ready to take on these people, the Philistines, that are accustomed to war. So what does he do? He takes them a different way. He condescends to their weakness. He wants to set them up for success. Now, you may look at your Bible and look at verse 18. Look at what it says at the end. It says that they were equipped for battle. And this is a really bad translation of the original Hebrew. What the original word means is not equipped for battle, but it literally means in formation. Meaning, as they're leaving Egypt, they're in like a military formation of smaller groups that are walking out together. You know, 50s, 100s, you know, 500s, 1000s, things like that. Okay? So you might, that might be kind of confusing. I just want to explain that. But ultimately here, what is God saying? He's saying these people are not ready. They can't go through the short way. They can't deal with the Philistines. They're not ready for that. And he's loving enough to set them up for success. He condescends to their weakness. These are people that are not great in faith yet. God knows that. And just to prove this point, if you're not convinced, look at a short account of what happens just a little bit into the future of God's people. If you just flip over three chapters... What God says would happen if he takes them the short route to get to the promised land through the land of the Philistines, that they're going to turn tail and head back to Egypt. What he says would happen actually does happen in a different way. You don't need to turn there, but this is chapter 16. Look at what it says. It'll be on the screen. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So this is just six weeks after our text for today. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the people, just six weeks after our text for today, are already wanting to go back to slavery. Because at least they had food, according to them, right? They're weak in faith, believing that God brought them out to this place to kill them. Now, that's confusing. Just six weeks ago, you saw the Red Sea part as Pharaoh's armies are bearing down on you to destroy you. And God does a miracle, spreads the Red Sea apart... You pass through, Pharaoh and his armies come through, Red Sea closes down on them, and they're all destroyed. God is mighty in battle to save his people. And you just saw that six weeks ago, and here you are, weak in faith, saying, let's go back to Egypt. This is lame. 
God's not going to provide. You know what? He actually brought us out here to kill us. They're weak in faith. They prove it. So in our text for today, we see that God knows this. He doesn't want them to be killed by the Philistines. So he provides for his people in the midst of their weakness and frailty. He doesn't make them take on more than they can bear right away. So what does this have to do with us? Isn't it good to know that we have a heavenly father that is willing to condescend to our weakness, that's willing to come down on our level? Like a good father or mother gets down on their knees and looks their son or daughter in the eye, right? And doesn't just bark orders from on high. Get your act together. What's your problem? How come you're so weak? Right? That's not how our God is. That's not how our God is. God doesn't reject us in our weakness, but quite the opposite. He bears our weaknesses and sins and lack of faith for us. Right? This is the only religion in the world where God bears our weaknesses and sins upon himself. Look at what, look at what Matthew 8 says. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother lying sick with a fever. That's a form of weakness. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Why? Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is our God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what Jesus does. So this is what the Father does. He doesn't reject those who are weak. He carries their weaknesses for them. So so embracing that you're weak and needy and needing help is in fact a prerequisite of becoming a Christian. Like when we sing the song, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you, Right? Do you, do you mean that? Or are you just mouthing those words? Right? I hope we mean it. Because we know that we're weak. We know that we're needy. We know that we need help. Right? See, if, if you don't know how weak and needy you are, then you'll never need a Savior. Right? Like, if you have a problem with God as a good father coming to you and saying, I know you can't do it, but I'm willing to do it for you. I will come down on your level and make provision for your frailty, sin, and weakness. I will die in your place so that you don't have to. I will bear in myself the penalty that you deserve to save you from the wrath of God. You can't save yourself. You're too weak, but I'll do it for you. And then you can come to me over and over again in faith and trust and live your life to glorify me by trusting me, by treasuring me. That's Christianity. But if that doesn't sound good, then Christianity is probably not the place for you. But it starts with owning to the fact that, man, I'm weak. I can't do this. Christianity is not a self-help religion. Christianity is a religion where God helps you and you say, yes, Lord, I need it. I can't do this. 
Think about it from the lens of our text for today. God's people could have said, well, God, you said to not go the short route, but, you know, the Philistines, whatever, they've got a reputation, but we're kind of big stuff too, right? So let's go. Let's take them. We can do this. They could have done that, but they would have been routed. But thankfully, they listened to God, and by faith, they listened, by faith, they believed him, and they did what he said. And they're saved from the wrath of the Philistines. They didn't think too highly of themselves, right? So in the same way, if you listen to God and trust that he knows that you're weak and has made a provision for your spiritual weakness, you will be saved. If you listen by faith, trust his word by faith, you will be saved from the wrath of God. Same process for the people here in this text as we have to have post-Jesus. It's the same process of faith. So number one, God clearly provides for the weakness of his people. He doesn't give them more than they can handle right away. Number two, God provides for his people by keeping his promises. God provides for his people by keeping his promises. So let's keep reading. They're leaving the land of Egypt, and something peculiar happens. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him as they're leaving, right? For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So, what is this all about? What's this business about Joseph and his bones and not wanting to stay in Egypt? And what's going on here? It's kind of odd. It seems to like drop this into this account of them leaving well, we're going to have to think a little bit below the surface, and we have to know a little bit of the storyline of the Bible to make sense of this, okay? But here's the point. Joseph is quoted here because he makes a statement that's very, very full of faith in the, in the provision of God. That's the point. He makes a statement that's very, very full of faith in the provision of God, so much so that God's people in this text, they remembered it. They remembered what Joseph said, right? God, look at the quote, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. So let me paint a picture of what this is like, and then I'll explain it, okay? So what this, consider a situation like this in your life. You go on a trip to a, a nation somewhere in the world that is maybe hostile to the United States. And a group of terrorists capture you, they enslave you there, and you're there the rest of your life. Until... You're on your deathbed, and it's, you know, maybe you're 85 years old, you get cancer, and you're wasting away, and right at that time, a rescue party from the United States comes, and they save you. And they can tell that you're not doing well, you only have maybe a day to live, and they ask you, they say this, I see that you're about to die, should we just bury you here? What would you say? Say, no way. I don't want to be buried here in this foreign land of these people that have oppressed me. I want to be buried at home. Even though you're dead, just the, the thought of like being buried in your homeland is comforting, right? I want to be buried in my homeland next to my loved ones. I want to be identified with them. And that's kind of like what's going on here with Joseph, but it goes even deeper, right? So we have to set the stage here a little bit. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. So if you've been tracking with us, you'll know somewhat of the storyline of the Bible. 
God comes to Abraham many centuries before our text for today and says, I'm going to make you a great, huge people that's going to be a blessing to all nations, and you're going to do that from a specific place, the promised land that I'm going to give, right? So I'm going to be your God, and you're going to have a place, and you're going to be my people, and you're going to be on this mission to bless the whole world, okay? So Joseph is the great-grandson of the person, Abraham, who received that promise, right? And so what happens is, obviously, this is a massive promise, and Joseph believed it. He remembered it, right? He knew full well these promises given to his great-grandfather, Abraham. But he didn't know how that was going to come to pass. He didn't know how these promises were going to be enacted. But what does he say? He says in this text, there's going to come a day when, when y'all are going to get out of here. You're not going to be in Egypt anymore. You're not going to be in Egypt anymore. And so what he says is, I don't want to be left in Egypt because this is not the promised land. I know there's a promised land coming. There's a day coming. There's a day coming when God will fulfill his promise. It's not now. We're in Egypt right now. But on that day, take my mummified body and don't bury me here. I don't want to be in Egypt forever. God will keep his promise. And when that happens, even though I'm dead, lay me to rest in that land of promise. See how full of faith this is? And then 430-some years later, it actually comes to pass. Right? It actually comes to pass. Now think if you were reading this text for the first time. How amazing it would be to see that God has actually kept his word and we get to participate in it. This promise that made Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they land in Egypt. The, the family expands greatly. They're enslaved in Egypt. They can't leave. And now here we are leaving Egypt and this promise that, that, that we made to Joseph is coming to pass and we're participating in it. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that there should be a huge um, banner flying over you saying, man, God provides by keeping his promise. Look at these, look, look, at, look at what Joseph believed. We're carrying his body out of here. God has fulfilled his promise. That would have been so encouraging to the first audience of this text reading this, and it should be encouraging to us. I mean, don't miss the simple phrase, verse 20. What does it say? And they moved on. We can blow by that and lose the profundity of that because it's so small, seemingly insignificant, but this is no small statement. Joseph was right. God keeps his promises. They're moving on from slavery in Egypt to the land that God promised to give them. Number one, God provides for his people in the midst of their weakness and frailty. Number two, God provides for his people by keeping his promises. And then finally, number three, God provides for his people by giving them guidance. God provides for his people by giving them guidance. So a lot of us are just yearning for guidance, right? I remember being in my 20s and having different options ahead of me, like what am I going to do with my life, and I don't know which option to take, what, what path should I go down. You know, some of you may be like, in the like midlife crisis stage where it's like, man, I've been around for a while now and what is my life all about? Is this really it? This is like grown-up life. I didn't think it would be like this, you know? I need some guidance. Like, what am I supposed to be doing, right? I have this talk a lot with younger people 
who are maybe on the, the front side of their career and they're like, should I stay the course? Should I do this? Should I do this? Or I've been engaged to this gal for a while. Should we get married? Should we not? Should I stay and take this job or should I go and take a different job? Right? I, I want to know what God wants me to do and I don't want to screw it up. Right? I have that talk with, with specifically young people a lot. If you're, if you're that person in this room, by the way, let me just give you a book plug. There is a, a little book, you can go online right now and buy it on Amazon, called Just Do Something. Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. If you're in that stage and, and you, you relate to what I'm saying, buy that book and read it, okay? Just do it. Just do something, all right? Now, there, there may be many things that I might try to say to that person, Okay? And one of the things that I often say is something like this. When it comes to guidance from God, like, Lord, what am I supposed to do with my life? I don't want to screw it up. And you're kind of paralyzed by indecision. One of the things I say to that person is, you know what? God can ride it in the sky. Like, he can send the plane with the big banner behind it that says, I want you to marry her right now. Go buy the ring. You know what I mean? He could do that. But he often doesn't. Rarely does he operate that way. He can, but he rarely does write it in the sky. So you're going to have to pay attention to your Bible. You're going to have to pay attention to prayer. You're going to have to read the Proverbs and see where it says there's wisdom and abundance of counselors. You're going to have to listen to people who love you and aren't intimidated by you and are willing to tell you the truth. You're going to have to do some fasting and just plead with the Lord. But at the end of the day, he usually doesn't write it in the sky. What he asks you to do is to, to make a good decision by faith. Knowing that as you commune with the Lord, he's in the process of creating desires that align with his desires. And so then you just move in by faith. Like St. Augustine said, love God, and if you love God, then do what you want. Because loving God is going to define your desires, and you'll be in a good spot. Right? So God usually doesn't write it in the sky for us. But interestingly, in our text for today... He writes it in the sky, all right? He does write it in the, sky, in the sky in a sense. They're leaving Egypt, and they are led with crystal clear, explicit, can't miss it, don't tell me your lack in faith kind of guidance, right? He provided guidance to them in a very explicit way. Look at verse 21. As they're leaving, taking Joseph's bones with them, going the long way around through the wilderness, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So he gives them this really clear, visible thing, kind of like a plane with a banner that says, yeah, get the, get the ring, marry the girl. It's kind of like that. God was so good to them to give them what they needed so they could follow him where they were supposed to go. Look at verse 21. He went before them to lead them. So they weren't wandering aimlessly, right? God provides guidance. And that's the big point that an original audience would see and that I think we need to see as, as well this morning. God provides, and he's so good to provide guidance over and over again. God promises to provide, and he does provide guidance. He has a plan, and he will fulfill that plan through providing for his people. He leads his people 
clearly. We see that here in this text. We see it in the whole Bible. He will not abandon his people. So what does this mean for us? I think for us, a lot of times, with a text like this, it's kind of tricky. And we can get tripped up here if we're not careful. The problem we run into when we read the Bible with a text like this, especially in a historical event like this, is to be like, well, I want some clarity just like this. When, when am I going to get my pillar of cloud and fire? And the, You know what I mean? It doesn't even take that much faith. I'm just going to follow the, the thing. I, I want the plane with the banner. But Lord, like, I'm just going to wait until it's clear. Well, there's no promise that this is a repeatable event, Okay. And just because God acted like this at one point in history doesn't mean he will do that in another point in history. But fear not. There's a really encouraging thing here. And here's the deal that all of us need to hear. It may not be a pillar of fire and cloud, but God has provided unmistakable, clear guidance for his people to follow by faith. Today, right now, where you sit. And he continues to do it day after day after day. We do have guidance just like this. And it's right here in the Bible. We don't need a pillar of cloud and fire to know where to go and to know what we're supposed to do. God's word right here tells us exactly where to go and what to do. So if you're wrestling with what your life is all about and where you should go and what you should do, here it is. It's going to be on the screen. You ready? This is, this is the, the plane with the banner, okay? Here it is. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. So what am I supposed to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples where? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Oh, all nations. And do what with them? Oh, we're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And do what else? Oh, we're going to teach them to observe all that I've commanded, says Jesus. And behold... Man, this is comforting right here. This is provision right here. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So where are we supposed to go? We're not going to the promised land like the Old Testament people. That day is done. There is no promised land anymore. What is the land of promise now, according to Jesus? The land of promise now is all nations. It's the whole world that God has created the land is the whole world. The whole world is God's property. He calls us to, to be people who inhabit it for the sake of making his name known in all the world. And, and this isn't an occupation of domination, okay? It's neighbor love that lays down its life for all nations of the world so they can know the love that God has for them in Jesus. So where are we supposed to go? Go into all the world, all nations. No promised land anymore. We have a new promised land, the whole world. That's why we're really excited about neighbors and nations here at the Vine. Because of this, it's connected right here, right? We have a mission. We have a, a, a clear word from God that we are called to follow. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make disciples by planting churches. Make disciples by planting churches. So if you want a pillar of cloud and fire, that's it. That's it. No matter what you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a doctor or you're a teacher or you're a custodian at the hospital or whatever you're doing, 
make sure that you're doing, whatever you're doing is connected to this. This is what we're supposed to follow. So clear, crystal clear. And here's the really good news. If you're vitally connected to this church or any other church that loves God and his word and his people and his mission, you are participating in the following of God's New Testament pillar of fire and cloud. We have our Bible and the Spirit of God that indwells us to lead us into the truth of God's word, and we're experiencing the provision of God. It's happening, right? Disciples are being made right now in Madison. We're following the pillar and, and, and a fire and cloud. Uh, uh, churches are being planted in, in Madison and, and Morocco and Ecuador and all over the world by people that we have no clue about. It's happening. It's happening. So if you're struggling to know God's will for your life, just know this. He probably isn't going to write it in the sky because he's already written it down. Did you catch that? Whatever you do, make sure your life connects with this and this, okay? And you can know that you're following God by faith as you should. That's your pillar of cloud and fire for you today. And once you've got that settled, don't worry about the minutia of where I should live, or what am I going to do, or who I'm going to marry. Do what you want, right? Do what you want. Don't be paralyzed by indecision. Because as long as you're connected to this, it shows that you love God and his spirit is alive in you. And he's going to work in you by faith to help you make the decisions about the minutia, right? He's not as worried about the minutia as he is about what he's clearly articulated to you. So just focus on that and it's going to be fine. I promise. Okay? Number one, God provides for his people in the midst of their weakness and frailty. God provides for his people by keeping his promises. And finally, God provides for his people by giving them guidance about where to go to see his promises fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. We thank you that you've gone before us in a thousand million different ways so that we can be encouraged by those that have gone before us. And may we move into the future with faith because you've been so faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Zach. So we now transition to the Lord's table, reading from Matthew chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now, as as we do every week, we have the opportunity to really uh, remind ourselves, but also to celebrate uh, the provision that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sins um, offered by his uh, life, death, and resurrection. And so my hope this morning is as you come forward this morning, as the words are spoken over you, uh, really from Jesus, that uh, my body was crushed, my blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, that that would really uh, create in you just a reminder, but also a, a cause to celebrate the life that you have in Christ. Uh, so just logistically here at the Vine, uh, what we do, the musicians will come forward, the servers will come forward. Uh, we just ask as you're ready to come down the side aisle, 
there's a wafer, there's bread, dip it into the juice. There's also hand sanitizer as well. Um, But we just ask, if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you to come forward to participate, to celebrate, to remember. Um, But if you're not a follower of Christ, this is the one element of the service. We just ask that you consider these truths that were discussed this morning, that God is our provider, that you can have life uh, in Christ. And we ask uh, that you consider those things, and if that is true for you, to to make um, that reality this morning. So uh, come as you're ready. I invite the musicians and servers to come forward.